Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder, and today we have the first part of a two-part series to kick off 2021 from Rebel EM and from the greater San Antonio district. We have Salim Rezai. He'll be talking about the seven most important papers he thought that came out during 2020 that did not pertain to COVID-19. Um, there's a lot of things that have been going on in our industry that we've kind of missed because of the pandemic. So we thought it was important to try and get some information out there as it pertains to medicine. That's not just COVID-19. The second part will be airing on Friday of next week. And then we'll be able to hear some of Dr. Rezai's thoughts on personal growth as well as for the other papers. So without further ado, here are the first four papers from Dr. Salim Rezai. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Overrun. Ed Bowder here. And on the line with me, I have Dr. Salim Rezai. This is his uh, second appearance on the show. He was actually the first guest we had on this podcast uh, oh so many years ago. Uh, so from San Antonio, welcome, Dr. Rezai. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great, man. Uh, I think like many people, it's been a, a rough 2020 for a yeah. lot of people. Um, <laughs> and listen, I has it been a couple of years since I've been on the show? I mean, it, it feels like been, yeah. it doesn't yeah. feel that long, but, uh, but wow. Um, I honored to be back. Uh, obviously it's, I did it's saying something. a lot seeing how, how long 2020 has lasted. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, either I did something really well the first time I was on, or I did something horribly wrong, which is why you're bringing me back on for a second time. <laughs> Give me a chance to bring it back. <laughs> we have Dr. Rezai here to avenge himself from his first, uh, his first appearance on the show. So what, what we wanted to do is, and we've talked about this off air, um, 2020 has been what we can reasonably refer to as a dumpster fire. Um, there was a ton of literature and research that came out throughout the year of 2020. And I think a lot of it was kind of uh, obscured by coronavirus as well. It probably should have been. Um, you know, cases are, are growing. They don't seem to be stopping. Um, you know, we're in a, a second or third wave, depending on who you talk to. But, you know, whenever there's, there, whenever there's an illness, that's always going to come to the forefront. But there are things that have come out throughout 2020 that can adjust or augment your practice kind of in day to day that doesn't involve coronavirus. And at the end of the day, we're always going to have these illnesses in the pre-hospital environment. We're going to have your chest pains, you're going to have your bleeding, we're going to have all those problems. And now we just have to deal with it in addition to COVID. So, we kind of thought it was important to get away from the COVID for a little bit and focus more on just the general medicine. Um, you were good enough to come up with a bunch of papers that you thought were influential in 2020. So let's talk about this first one here. This is the Curasmore trial. I think I'm saying that right. It's, I always love when studies have like clever acronyms that only work if you look at it in a certain way. It's like if you turn your head sideways and look at yeah, it, it works They out. capitalize like random letters to make the right. acronym work. I mean, you know, this is a, this is a cool paper though. And I think it got a lot of traction. Um, I think this is earlier in 2020. Uh, it was published in JAMA. It may have even been end of 2019. Anyways, it's still pretty recent and I think worth talking about. And this was the whole debate of rocuronium versus succinylcholine for endotracheal innovation and looking at first pass success rates and the thing that's interesting to your listeners is this is a study that was done in the out-of-hospital setting. So this is rapid sequence innovation in the out-of-hospital setting. It was a randomized clinical trial, and it was done at many, many centers. And just to be specific up front, they were looking at rocuronium 1.2 milligrams per kilogram, which I think is a pretty decent dose of rocuronium. Oftentimes, people kind of underdose that, but they went with a pretty decent dose versus succinylcholine 
one milligram per kilogram. And both of these were intravenous and for rapid sequence intubation. And this was done at 17 French out of hospital emergency medical units. So we have a really good amount of centers that are involved in this. The, the dosing for rocuronum can be a little bit lower than the 1.2 milligrams per kilogram in a, a lot of different systems. Um, I, I do agree that that's probably a standard, relatively standard dose. Um, and we always know there's a, a risk of underdosing the paralytic when you're out in the field. Um, I, I do love that we have, you know, this is all out of hospital. This is direct intubation. This is directly applies to what we do. Um, and I do like that it's, it's a bunch of different hospitals. So it's, you know, we have a pretty good cross section, a pretty good end for the study. So let's talk about the primary endpoints. Let's talk about their, uh, what they actually found and let's get this clinical take home point we have for this. Yeah. So the primary outcome was exactly what I alluded to is just innovation success rate on first attempt. And the other thing I didn't mention up front is this is a, what they call a non inferiority trial. And so basically what they're looking for is that one medication isn't inferior to the other one, right? This isn't looking for superiority. This isn't trying to say, you know, one is better than the other. It's just trying to say that they're both basically about the same or they're not. And that difference in that first pass success rate, that non-inferiority margin that they set was about 7%, which is actually pretty small. Um, and I think that's, that's good because we're looking for basically a small difference between these two medications. And this was about 1,250 patients. Um, and when we look at the first pass innovation success rate for rocuronium, it was about 75%. And for succinylcholine, it was almost 80%. And so if you look at the between group difference, specifically down to the decimal, it was about a difference of negative 4.8%. So they didn't meet that non-inferiority margin. And so a lot of people started coming out and saying, well, you know, rocuronium is not inferior to succinylcholine. I always get confused with these like non-inferiority trials. The wording is like just circular, you know, you're just <laughs> like talking. It's not, circles. it's not better than, but not worse than, but it's also exactly. worse than, but not better than. Yeah. So, but you know, for me, when I look at this and a lot of people will come out and say, well, succinylcholine is better than rocuronium when we give it at, you know, the even correct doses. Cause that's been one of the big things we talk about in past trials is rocuronium is always underdosed. Like you'll see some places do like 0.6 milligrams per kilogram, which I've never understood, but that's the dosing range that people will use. Right. But for me, like, I don't even know why this is a debate. Like, honestly, <laughs> I don't, I don't even know, you know, like rock, rock sucks, sucks. Like it, listen, you can't be more paralyzed than paralyzed, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you're, giving, if you're giving a paralytic, right, as, as right. your first agent when you go to choose what to do, it, to me, if it was unsuccessful, minus anatomy, minus physiologic things, you did something wrong as the person in giving the medication. You either didn't wait long enough for the paralytic to take full effect right? So you tried to innovate too fast right. or you get, you underdosed, you didn't give enough. And so therefore they weren't fully paralyzed. And so I've never understood this debate because they're both paralytics. And if you know the onset of action and how long it takes for the patient to be paralyzed, then they should both work equally. It's not like one all of a sudden makes the anatomy better than the next one. <laughs> one's a super paralytic and one's just an okay paralytic. Well, that's, I think it's interesting because there's, you hear a lot of anecdotal stuff, I think, and I think it comes down to personal preference um, a lot of times. There are, I think there are advantages to having a shorter half-life to your paralytic. Um, 
but I, I think I, it's always nice to see something like this, like kind of codified in a study where it's just like, oh yeah, well, of course you can't be more paralyzed. Like there isn't, you know, the, the difference isn't like one is more paralyzed, which makes it easier to intubate. Um, I, I kind of think, and we talk about this on the show and I, I think about this off the air a lot is the, you know, a poor master blames his tools. And I, I think when I, when I see studies like this, it's kind of like, well, it's not the drug, you know, the, they, they both achieve paralysis. It's just, you can't, you know, slam a dose of sucks or slam a dose of rock and then try to intubate right afterward. You got to give it a second, just like every medication that we give. So and do go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. So do you think that, so what, do, do you have a personal preference or does it really not matter in your, in your clinical practice? So a couple of things here. So the first thing I would say is that uh, when I've chosen to intubate a patient, the whole how long they're paralyzed part doesn't matter to me. I, I want to know on the front end what's going to give me the best chance of success. And so the second point is knowing the onset of action of these medications. And for succinylcholine, at the dosing that they're using, it's about 60 seconds. And okay, yeah, it hangs around maybe nine or 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the most, and then it's gone. Um, Rocuronium, at a higher dose, so 1.2 milligrams per kilo all the way up to 2 milligrams per kilo, which some people are like super high dose rocuronium mm-hmm. in like shock states, the onset of action is also about a minute, but it hangs around for 40 or 50 minutes. So it lasts right. a little bit longer. So you have to know your medications. And then the third point I would make is for me, the preference is rocuronium. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, succinylcholine, although super rare, has all these things it can do. It can cause hyperkalemia. It can cause, you know, people who have myasthenia gravis. It can, you know, affect them. There's a lot of potential bad untoward effects of succinylcholine. Super rare, but why even risk it if you don't have to when you have another agent that works just as well in terms of its onset if you dose it correctly. And then the final thing is head-to-head they have studied succinylcholine versus rocuronium looking for this safe apnea time. How long can I take to intubate a patient before their oxygen saturation drops to a dangerous level? And rocuronium, by far and away, the non-depolarizing agent has a much, much longer safe apnea time than succinylcholine. So for those reasons, not because of this study, I choose rocuronium over succinylcholine. I, I think that's, I think that's, that's probably right. That's I, in my practice, I tend to move toward rock. Um, again, again, I don't think one is a superior paralytic. I think you're, you're, it's, it's a binary condition, right? You're either paralyzed or you're not. Um, I think pre-hospitally and, and correct me if, if you don't think I'm right on this. Um, I like rock because as I said, you're either going to be paralyzed or you're not. And I like the idea of, kind of knocking a patient down and you can keep them down, which gives you a little bit more control over the patient and their airway, especially in the back of an ambulance or, you know, if you have to move them from a walk up or if they're out, you know, in in an exposed environment, I'd rather, and I I hate, you know, saying that we treat these patients because it's more convenient for us, but that is, that is a factor. Um, I tend to think, you know what, I'd rather just go with rock and then, you know, whatever algorithm you work, ketamine, fentanyl, um, and get them intubated and then just kind of be on the way. It's, it's right. That sucks has, you know, all these potential side effects and problems. I just, I like the idea of being able to, you know, knock them down and keep them down for an hour. Just, you know, 
one fell swoop, everything's all done. So I think you can look at it from two ways, actually, Ed. So I, I think, first of all, in the pre-hospital setting, let's be honest, it's less than ideal conditions many times to intubate these patients, uh, as opposed to the diva status that I possess in the emergency (laughs) department, you know? Um, I mean, oftentimes you're like, it's some weird angle trying to get a tube in somebody. Always in a bathroom or behind the couch. Exactly. And so I want something that's going to give me a longer safe apnea time on the front end. So I think for that reason, rocuronium also makes sense. On the back end, yeah, I want to keep somebody down that is going to have a transport time without having to fight them. Now, the only caveat I will make to that is don't assume because the patient is not moving that they're not awake. And so you have to know that that medication hangs around for 40 or 50 minutes. And so that patient will also need sedation. They will also need analgesia to go along with that paralytic. And don't just assume because you have them down that they're not aware of everything that's going on. And so I think that's a second point that's really important. But I think both on the front end, on the back end, rocuronium just seems to make sense for the environments that you guys are working in. Yeah. And it's important to remember that you're, if the patient is paralyzed, they obviously can't move to comment on their condition. Um, speaking as someone who was recently intubated, uh, it's, it's, not a, a, it's not a super comfortable process. Um, you know, so that's something that if you're, if you're listening, you have to keep in mind, you know, if someone is down and then not that most people are going to have a 40 or 50 minute transport time, um, in, in most settings, but you do want to make sure, okay, like, have I redosed my, my sedation? Have I redosed my analgesia? Um, it is one of the downsides to a long-term paralytic, but most people I don't think are with patients for 40 or 50 minutes unless you're doing transport, which is fine. Um, but especially pre-hospitally things can get kind of chaotic. And I think it's important to sit and remember for a minute that you have to redose your analgesia and your, your sedation as well. So second one, um, let's talk about vitamins. Uh, I think that there's a lot of people in medical literature who just decided one day to study vitamin C. Um, you know, you, you imagine people sitting around a room and be like, oh, has anyone checked out oranges like yeah. recently? I guess... Like we, we figured out that it, it treats scurvy and then we started deciding to look at all these other things. So um, this is coming out of JAMA in 2020. Talk to us about vitamins. Yeah, so this, is, this didn't just come out of anywhere. It, it turns out that there's a proportion of people who when they are septic or in septic shock actually do have some thymine and vitamin C deficiency and maybe replacing that could help in terms of outcomes and time in terms of mortality in terms of getting them off pressors faster. And so I know there's been a lot of uh, agencies that have started doing this metabolic cocktail, which is kind of this like vitamin C, thymine and hydrocortisone for patients in, in uh, septic shock. And so this is the vitamins trial. And this is one of those funny trials we were talking about for the first trial where they capitalized just random letters to get to the <laughs> word vitamins. Um, but it, it was an interesting study. It was, you know, the effect of vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thymine versus hydrocortisone alone on time alive and free off vasopressor support among patients with septic shock. And this was published, like you said, in JAMA 2020. And this was a multi-center, randomized, open-label, parallel group control trial. And they recruited patients from 10 ICUs. So this isn't pre-hospital. This isn't ED. This is in the ICU from Australia, New Zealand, and Brazil. And I like this because 
they used two high-income countries and one middle-income country to try and help increase generalizability to multiple environments, um, which I really, really like. Um, the second thing is it's a randomized clinical trial because as many people may or may not remember, in 2015, Paul Merrick uh, did this amazing before and after study where he had a time period where they didn't get the metabolic cocktail for like maybe three to six months. And then the next three to six months, they got the metabolic cocktail. And then he showed this like miraculous mortality improvement. But there's so many problems with a before and after study because you don't know if it's that just the things you added made the difference, or maybe because you had a warm up period of three to six months, you just got better at caring for the patients that have sepsis, or now that you know that you're in a study, whereas the first three to six months you didn't pay attention, it's just kind of what we call standard usual care, all of a sudden now everybody's looking at you under a microscope and so you tighten up on things, you tighten up on the amount of fluids you're giving, you tighten up on endpoints, and so it's hard to say with that type of study. So it's good to see a randomized clinical trial on this topic. Well, right. And when you're doing the before and after, you know, you also worry about the, you know, the availability heuristics, the, the, the observation bias, you know, the, the Heisenberg effect, you know, where it's like, well, you know, you're, you're being watched. So, you know, that there is a risk. And then, you know, imagine if you were to enter a before and after study in, let's say, December of 2019, you know, th those those numbers are going to be artificially skewed. So it's, you know, it, you're right. It's not, it's not the worst type of study thing, but there, there can be a lot of problems with this. So this had a, this looks like 211 patients in the primary analysis. Did we, were there differences that were found that were, were relevant or significant or what, what are, what are our big takeaways from, from further vitamin usage? Yeah, so their primary outcome, which is what the study is powered for, is time alive and free off vasopressors at seven days uh, after they got randomized. And really, there was no difference. There was no difference in that primary outcome. Um, it was for treatment, it was 122.1 hours for control, which is basically just the hydrocortisone alone was 124.6 hours. So really, we're talking just a couple hours of difference. I mean, that's really not that much. There was also no difference in 28-day, 90-day ICU or hospital mortality. So they had like four mortality outcomes as secondary outcomes and found no difference. So really, it looked like based on this one study, it didn't really seem to impact the things that matter the most. Now, I like to be fair when I look at this stuff. And a lot of people say that this particular trial was doomed for failure when it was set up. And the reason they say it was doomed for failure is if you look at the time it took for people meeting eligibility criteria to be enrolled into the study till the time that they actually got the medications, for vitamin C, it was about 12 hours. And for hydrocortisone, it was about nine hours. And then add to that, the time from ICU admission to randomization, because remember, this is an ICU study, and that's an additional 12 hours. And so people will say, well, this is crazy. These are patients that are in septic shock for 24 hours in some cases or longer before we give these medications. And so, of course, you're not going to see an effect uh, when you wait that long. It was too late. The cat was out of the bag. Now, before you ask the next question, I'll say that's a very valid point. And I think most of us would agree that if we see septic shock in front of us, we're going to be a lot more aggressive about how quickly we're getting things on board. Uh, and that can be fluids and that can be appropriate empiric antibiotics, vasopressors, uh, steroids, those sorts of things. But the one thing I'll tell you is 
even if you don't believe because this study took too long to get those medications, there have now been five more randomized clinical trials looking at this question. And across the board, they are all negative. No difference in mortality, no difference in helping coming off vasopressors. So to me, that is a super strong signal of this probably doesn't work. So this is, the argument can be made that this is one, um, I don't want to say bad study because I, I, don't, I don't believe that. But if you were, if you were more of a, uh, an antagonistic person, you could say like this is, this is one uh, poorly constructed study among a, a small sea of better constructed studies that all show the same thing. So I, I, I see things, studies that come out like this. You know, I'm, I'm always, it's always interesting to see, you know, we want to find one very specific use for this algorithm. And I think that's important because it's nice to have that kind of sitting around in your, in your bag of tricks. Right. Um, and especially if you're, if you're working transport, if you're working SCT, whether it's ground or flight, you know, these are patients that you're, you might see that have this type of cocktail going through. Um, I'm always interested to see like, okay, well in this particular set, see what we did was we waited seven minutes to give a medication. And then in this study, we waited nine minutes and it turns out there's no difference between seven and nine minutes. And you know, as, as a reader, you're like, well, yeah, like there wouldn't be. Um, so I, I do think it's interesting watching the data pan out on, on these cocktails. I feel like with each study that comes out, each successive study, the data more and more tends to kind of skew away from using this type of cocktail. Um, I don't know if there's like a magic bullet type of study where there is like, no, we're not doing this anymore. Um, but it, it does seem to, it does seem to appear that with each subsequent study, they're like, okay, well, in this, we can only give it to twenty three year olds, and they have to have you know this very specific pathogen. Like, if I have a twenty three year old male with a gram positive pathogen, ah, this I'm set. This this works for that, you know. Um, so that that's always kind of it's my concern and my expectation when you see it because that's I, I feel like that's the road we're going down. I mean, the other thing I'll say is that some of the listeners may say, but what's the harm in giving vitamin C and thymine? Like, what's the toxicity? And, and I'll come out and be the first to say with thymine, there's no toxicity that I'm aware of. I mean, you could just give thymine if you want to. Vitamin C, there's this like theoretical idea of oxalate nephropathy, which causes renal failure. But in all the randomized clinical trials that I mentioned, we don't really see an increase in that with giving vitamin C. And these aren't small doses of vitamin C they're giving. I mean, they're given six grams a day. You know, these are whopping doses and we're just not seeing that. But to me, when I talk about toxicity, it's not the toxicity of the medication, but it's the toxicity of for every one thing that you ask somebody to do, there's something else they can't do. And we know that the more complicated you make the care of something, a particular diagnosis, the less likely we are to hit all the check boxes. And so we know that we have to identify these patients early. We know that we have to give them fluids. I'm not going to get into the debate of 30 cc's per kilo or not, <laughs> but we know we have to give them fluids. Okay, let's just leave it there. Yeah. Uh, we have to give them early empiric antibiotics. And uh, there were a couple of older studies looking at uh, antibiotics in the pre-hospital world, which didn't show benefit, but uh, I highly recommend people go check those out on my blog because I think those studies were actually set up for failure as well. And then there's corticosteroids and vasopressors for people who are in septic shock. Now add to that vitamin C, now add to that thymine, how many IVs does this person need? Which thing do you do first? 
right. you know, and, and so for every one thing you're asking somebody to do, there's something else they can't do. And so do I hold off on my antibiotics while I give the vitamin C and the thymine because I can push those in faster and delay the time that I'm not giving them something that I know makes a difference? And so that's the toxicity I worry about is for everything that we're adding, there better damn be a good benefit for why we're doing it. Otherwise, it's potentially distracting from the things that we need to be doing. And so that's my answer to people who say, but these aren't really that lethal of things. People take multivitamins every day. Well, and right. And it's, you know, whether it's a, a benign or, you know, air quotes, benign medication, you know, if we're like, you're, I think you're correct. If we're giving that, then we're not doing the thing that we know works, which would be something like antibiotics, you know, it just, generalized empiric treatment at once you have that first access to the patient, you know, they fit X and Y criteria. All right, we're going to get fluid, we'll get antibiotics. And then, you know, at, at the risk of saying, we'll figure it out down the road. I think that's, that's kind of where I'm going. And like, all right, we have these two drugs, we can, they'll make the most difference in the shortest amount of time, you know, and that's for, for our audience, that's kind of what we're looking for the most, right? It, one of the nicest things is working pre-hospitally, um, where it can also be frustrating, but it's, it's also very nice is you actually get to see kind of that immediate turnaround in a lot of patients. And, you know, you, you wouldn't see it necessarily in somebody with sepsis, but the idea of being able to treat them just empirically based off of, you know, what you see clinically and theoretically improving their outcomes down the road, I think is something that's important. Um, if for no other reason, just, I know that there's a million pre-hospital providers who say that a patient has a fever, what are we going to do for them? And then, you know, go about their day. And these are patients where we can, we can actually make a difference. Um, it's just important to realize what we're actually going through. So cardiac arrest has also been super popular. Uh, the next one, and I, listen, something that we've talked about as, as a show um, is we talk about cardiac arrest a lot. And there's a lot of cardiac arrest data. It comes out, it seems like there's a new study every day. Um, but this is, at the end of the day, I think this is, this is what we do. Right when when you're thinking of emergency medicine, whether it's pre-hospitally or in-hospitally, um, I think there's a lot of interesting sub-genres of things we do. But out like cardiac arrest is it, that's our wheelhouse. That's what we do. Um, so we have two here. We have one that's looking um, at ventricular fibrillation, and another one that's IV or IO in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, I'm really excited for the IVIO thing. I'm, I want to hear about this VF study. This came out of Ontario, Canada. So talk to me about the dose VF pilot study. Yeah. So, I mean, unless you've been under a rock, I mean, I think everybody's heard of double sequential external defibrillation, right? DSED. Um, and looking at specifically refractory ventricular fibrillation. And that's exactly what this study was. It was a pilot study. Um, it was a randomized clinical trial, and it was across four paramedic services in Ontario, Canada. And the title of the study was Double Sequential External Defibrillation for Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation, everything I just told you. It's called the DOSE-VF Pilot Randomized Controlled Trial. This was published in Resuscitation 2020. Now, this was a really cool study um, because I think, you know, a lot of people are like, well, if you can't get them out with one defibrillator, let's put more juice in them and we'll get them out with two defibrillators. <laughs> have, we, have we tried two? Yeah. yeah, let's, if this much didn't work, let's try more. It's actually more complicated than that. I'm kind of half joking because some of it has to do with vectors of electricity going through the heart as well. It's not just so much how much you're giving, it's also the vectors in which you're giving it. Um, and what they did is they randomized people into three strategies. So they said refractory VF, 
which they defined, by the way, um, after three standard defibrillation attempts, whatever standard is uh, at people's shops, and this study happened to be anterolateral setting of pads, after three shocks, they were defined as refractory. And so then they said, okay, from now on, we're going to do something different with our next set of subsequent shocks. So strategy one is what they called their standard defibrillation. So they just left the pads in the anterior lateral configuration and they continued to shock them in that way. Strategy two is what they called a vector change, which is where they, instead of going anterior lateral, they went anterior posterior. So they changed the vector of the pad. They put it behind instead of off to the side. They called that vector change defibrillation. And then the third strategy was the dual sequential um, external defibrillation, where they used also an anterior posterior kind of pad placement, but with two defibrillators. So they shocked with one set, then subsequently sequentially shocked with the second set. Um, and so those were the three groups. Um, pretty cool study, actually, that uh, they were able to do this and look at all this stuff, because these are all the things we talk about done in one pilot study. Right. So it, it, I think that I, I was happy to see that this kind of study came out, because you always wonder about recruitment. You worry about actually getting enough patients in, because these are, again, these are very specific criteria that the patients have to fit. Um, it looks like this study was able to recruit 152 patients, which is a, it's a that's a good end. I'm happy with that sample size. Um, I think, you know, it was probably, it was probably difficult to find 152 patients to, 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 I mean, 152 this, patients so with like refractory VF, right? We're not just right, talking yeah. out of hospital. I mean, this is like, that's actually a pretty decent size because it's such a niche thing that we see. Yeah. And that's, and you know, Having these patients, that's why I'm, I'm impressed with the recruitment for this. Uh, you know, it's having, having those patients is, it's almost exceedingly rare. You wonder if this is, you know, there's always the, the worry about, you know, selection bias in patients and things like that. Um, you wonder if there's something up in the water in Ontario that causes refractory VF in those patients. Um, but still, regardless of the cause, very good and very good sample size. What did they find? So the, their primary outcome was just termination of the refractory VF. And so for the standard pad placement, the anterolateral, it was about 67%. For the vector change where they went from anterior lateral to anterior posterior, it was 82%. And for the dual sequential external defibrillation where they used the two sets of pads, two defibrillators anterior posterior, it was 76.3%. So both vector change and dual sequential external defibrillation did better than leaving the pads in the same position that they were in. Now, they also looked at ROSC at any time. And when you look at dual sequential external defibrillation and vector change, they were both 40% for getting ROSC. Uh, no difference between the two. And then for the standard anterolateral, it was 25%. So obviously vector change or dual sequential external defibrillation both look like they do better in this case of refractory VF. And those, the 40% the over 25% is a really, that's a, a very impressive figure. That's, you know, that fits all the, the, the needs you're looking for. It's statistically significant. It's, you know, they didn't follow outcomes for these patients, but we, you have to get a ROSC before you can have an, an improved outcome. Um, this is important. These are, these are big numbers. Um, and I said the whole whole purpose of, of talking to you today is that these things have been kind of underreported. Um, there's been a debate for using dual sequential turbulation for a while. There's, you know, thoughts on whether whether it's increased electricity or vector change. Um, 
I tend to fall more toward the latter. You know, so there, there's there's a lot of uh, mystery and debate about it. Um, knowing this, if we know that there's a statistically significant sample out there that shows improved ROSC with these patients, there's, you know, now it's just a matter of implementation. So if you're a provider, have, do, do you use DSED in your shop? Have you done that? No, we don't. Um, we do vector change. And I think this study supports that completely. I mm -hmm. mean, it was near the same numbers with dual sequential than as it was with vector change. And if I could just take a minute, I, I would say that even in the pre-hospital setting, I'm sure you guys have multiple defibrillators, but let's say you don't. Well, this study supports that all you have to do is just change a vector and you may actually get just as good an outcome. Now, the second thing is that, like you said, this isn't survival with good neurologic outcome. That part we don't know. But right. like you said, you have to do A and B before you can get to C and D. And so, you know, the first steps are terminating the VF and, you know, getting them to get ROSC. And then, you know, then you can follow up on C and D. And it's a pilot study, right? It's just looking at the initial thing. Um, we are not doing DS, um, DSED at our shop. Um, you know, I think a lot of people worry about some of these case reports of defibrillator malfunction and skin burns. And um, I, what I would say is that if you're going to do it, and I'm not on here to say don't do it. I'm just saying I think we have something better that's simpler, which is important. Right. But if you're going to do it, the key is, is that you want to make sure your defibrillators are of the same sort because the way defibrillators give electricity is different. There's different models out there. So you want to use the same model. And the second thing I would say that's the most important is, and this is probably more important than the first point, is do not let the pads touch each other. Because that's when you get the retrograde electricity that goes up to the other defibrillator and causes the malfunction. So if, you, if you're operating in a pre-hospital environment and you're going to work on vector change, um, your simplest application, just two different sets of pads and just change the plug? Or are you actually moving the pads around manually? So logistically, uh, I think it's important that, that we realize that the basics of cardiac arrest must be accomplished to improve survival with good neurologic outcome. And that's always going to be high quality CPR with minimal interruptions. So right. what are the things we can do up front to ensure we're not interrupting that CPR? This stuff we're talking about right now is kind of higher end, higher level. And so for me, it's two sets of pads, one in the anterolateral position, one in the anterior posterior position up front, and just changing the plug out um, with the one defibrillator that I have. And the biggest thing is making sure you get that posterior pad on first because the lateral and the anterior ones are easy. Those are easy to get on right. a patient. It's the posterior one that's the key. And so up front, you want to get that posterior one on just right behind that scapula. And then you can put the patient down, resume your CPR, and then you can easily put the lateral and the two anterior ones. And now you don't have to do anything. You don't have to interrupt CPR. You literally unplug one set and plug in the other set. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's probably the the easiest way to go about it. And you're right. You want to be able to offload yourself kind of as best you can. Um, as far as the posterior pad placement, I, I always think of, you know, going back to ENT school where, you know, whenever we have someone who's in a, a trauma situation, we always tell them to clear the back before you put them on the backboard because that's the only option you're going to have to do it. And I wonder how many missed opportunities there were to place a posterior pad just, you know, in, in that one second when you're just trying to get an arrest onto a board or, 
you know, a Lucas or an auto pulse or. So that's exactly what I was going to say is for the Lucas, when we're sliding that the back part of the Lucas underneath the patient, that seems to be the ideal time to slap that posterior pad on. Then you roll them back down onto that um, Lucas backboard. And now you're clicked in, you already got your posterior placement pad in and you don't have to worry about the Lucas device, like taking it off and kind of complicating and getting clunky. You still got to slide that backboard underneath them. So you might as right. well just put that posterior pad on at the same time. And then when you roll them back onto their back, you're, you're all set. You don't even have to worry about it anymore. All right. So now let's move on to whether or not epinephrine, uh, which is a, a drug that exists, um, <laughs> whether, whether this, this, and we've, we've talked about this a bunch of different times uh, on the show. Certainly I know you guys over at rebel have, have talked about it, uh, We've all talked about it, like ad infinitum at this point. Um, so if I was to give epinephrine, do I give it IV or IO? And it turns out that uh, the Rock Consortium was good enough to answer that question for me. Well, I think they tried to answer the question for you. <laughs> they, they, um, they, I think they, they gave it a they, shot. They Bless gave it a hearts. shot. <laughs> so, um, I mean, first, let's take a step back. And, and I think you were alluding to this, but, you know, there's been no medication that has been shown to improve survival with good neurologic outcome. And that includes epinephrine, but yet a lot of people still use it. It's in a lot of guidelines. I don't think it's come out of the guidelines. I, my personal opinion is that the optimal dosing strategy of epinephrine is yet to be defined. And that mm -hmm. could be zero milligrams all the way up to a thousand milligrams. The whole give an amp of epi every three to five minutes and watch this roller coaster ride of sympathetic surge and watch it wear off sympathetic surge has never made sense to me. I've always thought a more linear kind of way of giving that epi is like a drip that's either guided by end tidal CO2 or by an arterial line, which I realize is not really feasible in the pre-hospital setting always. Um, but you can certainly use end tidal CO2 as a surrogate has always made more sense, but we don't really know the optimal dosing of epi. So let's just leave it at that. It may be nothing. It may be something, but the way we currently do it is not working. Right. And the paramedic two trials showed us that. Yes. And that's, that's been borne out in just so much. Yeah, so I'm not <laughs> I'm not making this up from like thin air. Like I mean there've been studies that have looked at it. I so I th I think most people know that. But let's say that okay, my protocol says that I'm still going to give it. Do I give it IV or epi or do I give it IV or IO for my epi? And this was a really interesting paper. It was a retrospective observational analysis of adult patients without of hospital cardiac arrest, presumed to be of cardiac origin, um, and basically these people gave either IV or they gave IO epi in the out of hospital cardiac arrest setting. And they wanted to see if there was a difference in outcomes for patients, right? And their primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge. Again, not survival with good neurologic outcome, but you got to start somewhere. Just alive out of the hospital. Yeah. A, a, a heartbeat on the sidewalk is that's step one. So, okay. So this was huge. I mean, this was like, you know, 36,000 patients. And when you look at the number of patients who got IV epinephrine, it was about 27, 28,000. And when you look at how many got intraosseous, it was about 8,000. So not a small number of people, which can really catch your attention when you're like, wow, this is like 36,000 patients without a possible cardiac arrest. That's pretty big. I should pay attention to this study. And what the authors concluded from this study was, all the outcomes favored IV over IO. So survival to hospital discharge, uh, the odds ratio was in favor of IV over IO. 
pre-hospital ROSC, same thing, favored IV. And then one of their secondary outcomes, they actually looked at favorable neurologic outcome. And again, they showed benefit all favoring IV. But there are some huge, 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 huge limitations that I want to talk about before we kind of say, well, we should just be doing IVs on all these patients. So I, when you read the primary data set like this, this, this bums me out because I've been a proponent of superglottic airway humeral head IO for, for years. Um, you know, and you never like to read a study that makes you uh, wrong. But um, I do think it's interesting. I was interested in seeing the numbers because 27,000 patients with IV epinephrine and uh, almost 8,000 patients with IO epinephrine. I was surprised to see that there was that disparity in IVs over IOs because this is, this is out of hospital cardiac arrest. So my, my first presumption would have been that the IO numbers would have been much, much higher. Um, and it turns out that they're less than uh, they're less than twenty five percent of uh, the the venous access in these cases. And I, I think the big reason for that is look at when they they recorded their data for these patients. It was two thousand eleven to two thousand and fifteen. And I think IO usage has increased at least in the last few years. And so right. it'd be interesting to see if that disparity still exists if you looked at this from let's say two thousand eighteen to two thousand twenty. Right. I, I think you would yeah. see a higher usage of IO. So I think some of this was just people just forgot about IO or just didn't use it that frequently. Yeah. And if it, if it was early enough in the timeline, you know, before Vitacare and Easy IO took over the world, um, you know, if you were still using like a jam sheeting needle type of setup, which is a phrase I haven't said in five years, um, you know, I can see how it would be more difficult and you would have, you would have less access. So you're right. Now, I mean, knowing that there's, there's those limitations, I think uh, it's something to keep in mind moving forward. So is this something that changes anything from what we, we already kind of know? Yeah, the answer is no. Uh, don't let this study change your practice of continuing to use IO. And so I'm going to go through like a few things why I'm saying that because people will be like, but the results showed and I'm, I'm <laughs> but like, it says, but it says, <laughs> and so, but the thing is, is you have to look at the methodology of what was done. So if the methodology is done poorly, then the conclusion you come to is also poor. And so it's really important. So number one, we have no idea where these IOs were placed. I mean, were these things placed in the proximal tibial location or were they placed in the humeral head? Because to me, those are two different locations. Humeral head is going to be central circulation. Proximal tibia or distal femur is going to be more peripheral circulation. And we know when people are in a shock state, medications getting back around into the cardiac output is going to be significantly lower. And so that can definitely bias results. Um, when you when you don't know the location of the IOs, you just don't know where they were put. Whereas the IVs, you know, at least they're all, you know, antecubital fossa. They're probably close, or, right? Yeah, they're closer than EJs. exactly closer than where you were putting these IOs. And again, I think back in 2011, 2015, distal femur and, and uh, proximal tib were probably the most common locations because we've now had more studies showing that no, we actually want to go as proximal as possible. Some right. studies even talking about sternal IOs, which I'm not going to get into here, <laughs> but that's just a crazy concept to me. Um, and then the other thing is there's just patient-specific factors that we don't know that could affect these results. And so what do I mean by that? So if I have somebody who's chronically ill, let's say they're an IV drug user or they're a dialysis patient, 
well, maybe these patients are just tougher to get IV access in. And so they're less likely to survive because they're just baseline. They're just sicker. And so they're more likely to get IO and that can cause imbalances between the groups. And so what do I mean by that? Well, if I, if it takes me longer to get access, I, what am I focusing on? Am I focusing on CPR? Or am I focusing on getting access? And so my suspicion is in a lot of these cases, they were attempting to get IVs unsuccessful and then they put an IO and that's potentially low flow or no flow time for these patients. And so you bias the results to favor IV. And then there's some really important confounders, like things that we need to pay attention to. Look at the bystander witness cardiac arrest. So this means they got bystander CPR 40% in the IV group, only 35% in the IO group. So again, more likely to have better outcomes. Public location, IV was about 15%. The IO was about 11%. So again, very biased in terms of where these patients are located. And then finally, shockable rhythm. I don't think anybody can argue with this. We know that shockable rhythms have a better outcome than non-shockable rhythms. 24% for the IV, 16% for the IO. So all of these things add up and start to bias the results to favor IV over IO. And that's the problem with retrospective registry studies when the methodology isn't done well. So you end up with this terrible conclusion, applaud the authors for trying to do the study and answer an important question. But unfortunately, this study doesn't change practice for me. All this study shows me is that if patients are sicker, they're more likely to get IOs a little bit later, and it's not an indictment of IOs, but it's just looking at sicker patients versus less sick cardiac arrest patients. And I know that's crazy. How can you get less sick than cardiac <laughs> arrest? But there are, we know there are tiers of sickness and you know comorbid yes. disease when it comes to cardiac arrest. So that's all this study tells me is that, yeah, in sicker patients that have harder IV access, yeah, they're going to get IOs and they're probably going to do worse. But that doesn't mean it's because the epinephrine caused something different than giving well, it IV or IO. Right. And that's, this is kind of one of the things we were talking about earlier, where you find a very hyper-specific set of patients that fit into a certain criteria that help. The biggest, you know, seeing that shockable rhythm, of, you know, an IV is started 24% of the time versus IO 16% of the time. Uh, well, like given those numbers, and that's that's an eight percent difference. We know that shockable rhythm patients tend to have better outcomes, so it would stand to reason that people with IVs have better outcomes. Now, the the first thing I do want to say is, I while this is important, and I think it's it's data that we all need to hear. Um, you know, I, I don't I I don't want to you know like whore for big IV or big IO, um, but I. The last thing to me that I would think would make a difference in cardiac arrest would be the type of venous access that you get. A hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree. We've already yep. studied epi. Epi doesn't work. <laughs> so it's not the epi. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's that if, it, if it's not the drug, it must be the style in which it's delivered. And that's the thing. It's, you know, I, I, I'd be shocked, and you, you might know this better than I do, if there's not data out there like, well, it turns out that pushing epinephrine through a 20-gauge IV and pushing epinephrine through a 16-gauge IV, did you know if you push through a 16, it gets to circulation faster? Check that out. And it's like, yeah. It, <laughs> of course this, it is, this is the way I think of it, Ed. I mean, this is the way it boils down to me. We know that there are two things in cardiac arrest that over and over and over again through all the new 
guidelines, all the new things that kind of come out, all the new hotness, all the sexy topics, high quality CPR with minimal interruptions and early defibrillation are the only two things that have stood the test of time. And I know they're not sexy and they're boring to talk about, but we have to get the basics right to improve survival with good neurologic outcome. To me, that means that we need to do things that cognitively and logistically offload us so we can focus on those things. And for me, that's a humeral head IO every time, no questions asked. That sucker goes in in two seconds. It's central circulation. You can give everything you need to give in there and you can focus on the CPR and the early defibrillation. So for me, this study changes nothing. So just as a as a practice point, once you get your humeral head IO, do you have a preferred superglottic airway you go to at that point? Over on Productions LLC and Rebel EM LLC do not necessarily endorse any particular product or brand. Yeah, but I, I don't endorse one brand over another. I'll tell you that the studies have been done with the second generation iGels. That's kind of what's been studied. And so that's what I tend to go with because you know every device is gonna be a little bit different in terms of how it fits and how it works. I, I think the more right. important thing as opposed to which type of superglottic device you go with is the fact that you use a superglottic airway because it's, you know, cardiac arrest has changed. It used to be you get the airway first, focus on breathing, and then you get to circulation. And what turns out is that circulation is pretty important in cardiac arrest, <laughs> right? You got to perfuse it's the coronary. The heart does yeah. the thing it's supposed to do. And the brain gets perfused, right? Yeah. You got to have perfusion to the brain and the heart in order to get people ROSC and out of their whatever their uh, rhythm is and to make sure that they have a good neurologic outcome. And so for me, the focus is now changed to CAB, right? And that's what all the mm -hmm. guidelines tell us. And so I don't innovate until after the fact, or if I happen to have a huge number of people around. So this is a, a man and woman power thing. Again, not detracting from the thing that's most important. And so I think in a pre-hospital setting, most teams are two team uh, teams. And so in that setting, you put a superglottic device and move on, move on to right. like what you got to do. Now, if you happen to work in an environment where you have a four man or woman team, or you happen to be in an ER where you have 50 people around a patient, by all means intubate, but just don't let it interrupt the CPR. So I think it just depends on the environment. I don't think the superglottic device you use matters. I think the more important thing is focus on what we know makes a difference. Well, it, it, I think that's an interesting point to make too, because you had mentioned that you don't intubate right away. And there's also data that kind of, it, it seems like it's starting to lean that way where maybe intubating right away isn't the right thing to do. You know, there might be a couple minutes that we have to kind of hesitate to intubate. That's a whole other discussion for a whole other day because we could, Lord knows we could both spend hours here just being like, oh, yeah. let's talk about our favorite airways. All right. That was our first half of my interview with Salim Razai from Rebel EM. Lots of interesting stuff that he talked about. We talked about cardiac arrest a lot in EMS, and it's still important. It hasn't gone away, and we still have no idea what the hell we're doing. So it's good to know that we're going into 2021 with uh, a lot of optimism uh, moving forward. So next week on Friday, Dr. Razai will be back for the second half, and we'll talk a little bit more about what to expect in 2021. Check us out over on productions.com and all the social medias. You can search over on productions and find us. You can also check out our merch store at over on productions.com slash store. Thank you for listening. I am Ed Bowder for The Overrun, and we'll talk to you next week.